Section 2 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. Chapter 1. The Watergate Break-In and Its Prelude, Part 2. 3. The Plumbers. In June 1971, the leak of the Pentagon Papers prompted the President to create a Special Investigations Unit, later known as the Plumbers, inside the White House under the direction of Edgell Crow. Crow, in return, was directly supervised by John Ehrlichman. Crow was soon joined by David Young, and in July, the unit, staffed up for a broader role, added G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt both known to the White House as persons with investigative experience. Liddy was a former FBI agent, Hunt a former CIA agent. The Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty negotiations were compromised by the leak of sensitive documents at the time this unit was being formed, July 23, 1971. This problem was included within the Plumber's mission. Two subsequent leaks were likewise added to the purview of the unit's activities. The India-USSR leak. Ted Zolk article of August 13, 1971. And the India-PAK leak. Jack Anderson article of December 16, 1971. According to Ehrlichman, it was felt that White House supervision of the leak-finding unit would stimulate the various departments and agencies to do a better job controlling leaks and the theft or exposure of national security secrets within their departments. This special investigations unit planned and carried out the burglary of the office of Dr. Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, Dr. Louis J. Fielding. While this burglary is also discussed elsewhere in this report, it is relevant here as reflective of the White House attitude towards illegal intelligence gathering. Moreover, the activities of the plumbers are closely related to the Watergate break-in because both operations were under the supervision of Hunt and Liddy, and both employed as burglars certain Cuban-Americans recruited by Hunt. Two of the Hunt recruits participated in both burglaries. Also, fear of revelation of the Ellsberg break-in contributed significantly to the massive cover-up following the Watergate burglary. The committee report demonstrates that Crow and Young, as directors of the plumbers, recommended to Ehrlichman a covert operation to obtain Ellsberg's psychiatric records, which were in the custody of Ellsberg's psychiatrist, Dr. Fielding. Crow pled guilty on November 30, 1973, to a federal charge based on his role in that affair. On the question whether Crow and Young were acting with the approval of Ehrlichman, the select committee received considerable evidence. On August 11, 1971, Young and Crow sent a memorandum to Ehrlichman, which included the following report and recommendation. We have received the CIA preliminary psychology study, copy attached at tab A, which I must say I am disappointed in and consider very superficial. We will meet tomorrow with the head psychiatrist, Mr. Bernard Malloy, to impress upon him the detail and depth that we expect. We will also make available to him some of the other information we have received from the FBI on Ellsberg. In this connection, 
we would recommend that a covert operation be undertaken to examine all the medical files still held by Ellsberg's psychoanalyst covering the two-year period in which he was undergoing analysis. Beneath this recommendation were the words approve and disapprove, each followed by a blank space. The handwritten letter E was placed in the blank space after the word approve, and beneath it, also in handwriting, was the message, if done under your assurance that it is not traceable. Ehrlichman testified that the letter E and the handwriting beneath it are his. Ehrlichman testified that he did not approve or have knowledge of the break-in in advance, and that his understanding of the term covert operation did not include a break-in. And in the edited presidential transcripts for a March 27, 1973 meeting, Ehrlichman, in reference to this break-in, is quoted as saying, Well, sir, I didn't know. I didn't know what this crowd was up to until afterwards. However, the committee notes that the August 11th memorandum called for a covert operation to obtain medical files still held by Ellsberg's psychoanalyst. Other documentary evidence is also relevant. Thus, in a memorandum dated August 26, 1971, from Young to Ehrlichman, concerning a plan to disparage Ellsberg by feeding selected information to a congressional investigation, a footnote makes the following point. In connection with Issue 9, relating to changing Ellsberg's image, it is important to point out that with the recent article on Ellsberg's lawyer, Bowden, we have already started on a negative press image for Ellsberg. If the present Hunt-Liddy Project Number 1 is successful, it will be absolutely essential to have an overall game plan developed for its use in conjunction with the congressional investigation. In this connection, I believe that the point of Buchanan's memorandum on attacking Ellsberg through the press should be borne in mind, namely, that the situation being attacked is too big to be undermined by planting leaks among the friendly press. If there is to be any damaging of Ellsberg's image and those associated with him, it will therefore be necessary to fold in the press planting with the congressional investigation. I mentioned these points to Colson earlier this week, and his reply was that we should just leave it to him and he would take care of getting the information out. I believe, however, that in order to orchestrate this whole operation, we have to be aware of precisely what Colson wants to do. Recommendation. That you sign the memorandum to Colson asking him to draw up a game plan. Tab A. Tab A was a memorandum from Ehrlichman to Charles Colson dated August 27, 1971, which was only several days prior to the Ellsberg break-in. On the subject... Hunt Liddy Special Project Number 1. The memorandum from Ehrlichman to Colson stated, On the assumption that the proposed undertaking by Hunt and Liddy would be carried out and would be successful, I would appreciate receiving from you by next Wednesday a game plan as to how and when you believe the materials should be used. The only Hunt Liddy Special Project under consideration when these memorandums were written was the covert operation to obtain Ellsberg's medical records, and thus the only materials that would be received, if the project were successful, would be those medical records. It appears from these memorandums, and Hunt's testimony before the committee, that a primary strategy of the plumbers was to obtain information to fuel a campaign to damage Ellsberg's image. 
This political motivation is highlighted in Young's August 26 memorandum to Ehrlichman by a bracketed note connecting Democratic Party leadership with the Ellsberg matter, which states, I am sending you a separate hunt to Colson memorandum, which attempts to select the politically damaging material involving the Democratic hierarchy. I personally believe a good deal more material could be developed along these lines. To begin with, we have Conan, Lansdale, Harkin, and Nolting, who could possibly be called to testify. There is also a July 28, 1971 memorandum from Hunt to Colson, in which Hunt states, I am proposing a skeletal operations plan aimed at building a file on Ellsberg that will contain all available overt, covert, and derogatory information. This basic tool is essential in determining how to destroy his public image and credibility. In his testimony before the committee, Hunt denies that the primary reason for the break-in was to destroy Ellsberg's public image, but he did admit that certain material expected to be obtained from Dr. Fielding's files might have been useful in discrediting Ellsberg. David Young has insisted to committee staff that the thrust of the entire psychiatric study of Ellsberg was to determine whether Ellsberg was the kind of person capable of manipulation or whether he was acting alone. In this regard, it should be noted that in the memorandum of August 26th, referred to above, Young informed Ehrlichman, It may well be that although Ehrlichman is guilty of the crimes with which he is charged, he did not in fact turn the papers over to the New York Times. The Defense Department's analysis of the printed material may even show that Ellsberg did not have some of the papers which the New York Times printed. Furthermore, the whole distribution network may be the work of still another and even larger network. Crow, in his statement after sentencing, disavowed any continuing belief that the fielding operation was justified by national security. Judge Gerhardt Gazelle, the trial judge for the Ellsberg break-in case, also has rejected national security as a defense in that matter. Order of May 24, 1974. The edited transcripts of the presidential conversation submitted to the House Judiciary Committee suggest that the national security defense for the Ellsberg break-in may well have been an afterthought contrived to provide protection for those involved. The following exchange is at page 336. E. If Hunt talks, I would put the national security tent over the whole operation. P. I sure would. On June 3, 1974, Charles W. Colson pled guilty to a charge of obstructing justice by engaging in a scheme to prepare and obtain derogatory information about Daniel Ellsberg and to leak such information to certain newspapers for the purpose of publicly discrediting Ellsberg. Colson admitted he engaged in this conduct to prejudice Ellsberg in the criminal case against Ellsberg relating to the Pentagon Papers incident being prosecuted by the federal government. Colson had agreed with Hunt's recommendation that Ellsberg's psychiatric records be obtained, a recommendation that led to the burglary of Dr. Fielding's office by the plumbers. Note, on July 12, 1974, after this report was prepared, Messrs. John Ehrlichman, Gordon Liddy, Bernard Barker, and Eugenio Martinez were convicted in federal court of conspiring to violate the civil rights of Dr. Fielding by illegally entering his office. 
Mr. Ehrlichman was also convicted on two counts of perjury to the grand jury investigating this matter. The evidence before the committee demonstrates that, in July and August 1971, the CIA provided technical assistance to Howard Hunt that, among other uses, was instrumental in the break-in of Dr. Fielding's office. This assistance was made available after then-Deputy Director General Robert E. Cushman received a request for aid from the White House and met with Hunt on July 22, 1971. According to Cushman, CIA assistance to Hunt was terminated when Hunt's demands became too extravagant that Cushman refused to meet them. Cushman testified before the committee that in July 1971, he received a call from Ehrlichman asking for assistance for Hunt. Cushman further testified that Ehrlichman stated that Howard Hunt was a bona fide employee, a consultant on security matters, and that Hunt would come to see me and request assistance which Mr. Ehrlichman requested that I give. Ehrlichman has denied any recollection of this call. He has also said that, any call to the CIA is the kind of call that I usually have little or no difficulty in remembering. CIA records, however, indicate that it was Ehrlichman who made the July 1971 telephone call. The minutes of the meeting of the top CIA officials held several days after the telephone call show that Cushman reported that it was made by Ehrlichman. A transcript of the Cushman-Hunt meeting on July 22, 1971, indicates that Ehrlichman placed this call. Also, the CIA has provided the committee with a recently discovered transcript of the Ehrlichman to Cushman phone call prepared by Cushman's secretary. The transcript clearly shows that Ehrlichman made the call seeking assistance for Hunt and invoked the president's name in order to procure this aid. The transcript of this conversation reveals the following statement by Ehrlichman. Mr. Ehrlichman, I want to alert you that an old acquaintance, Howard Hunt, has been asked by the president to do some special consultant work on security problems. He may be contacting you sometime in the future for some assistance. I wanted you to know that he was, in fact, doing some things for the president. He is a longtime acquaintance with the people here. He may want some help on computer runs and other things. You should consider he has pretty much carte blanche. There is additional evidence regarding this telephone call that is instructive. On December 16, 1972, after the Department of Justice began its investigation of the fielding matter, Cushman called Ehrlichman and stated that he was uncertain who called him in early July 1971 about Hunt. Ehrlichman told this to Dean, who requested that Ehrlichman ask Cushman to put this in writing. But Cushman, on January 8, 1973, sent a memorandum on the Hunt matter to Ehrlichman, stating that the early July telephone call was probably made by Ehrlichman, Colson, or Dean. Ehrlichman immediately called Cushman to complain about the inclusion of his name. Cushman, therefore, sent Ehrlichman another memorandum regarding Hunt, dated January 10, 1973, which stated that he could not recall who in the White House had called him. This memorandum was later given to Assistant U.S. Attorney Silbert. These two memorandums were written before Cushman refreshed his recollection by examining CIA documents prior to his testimony before the Select Committee. In late August 1971, after Hunt's demands became excessive, 
Cushman called Ehrlichman to complain. Ehrlichman said he then asked Cushman what Hunt's assignment was, and Cushman said he did not know. According to Ehrlichman, he, that is Ehrlichman, then said that he would take responsibility for terminating the CIA's assistance to Hunt, and if there were any squawks or kickbacks from anyone in the White House, to simply refer them to me. Shortly after this telephone call, CIA assistance to Hunt was terminated. 4. Project Sandwedge The committee to re-elect the president was gearing up for its own political intelligence gathering program around the same time as the Ellsberg break-in. In September 1971, John Dean asked Jeb Stuart Magruder to join him for lunch with Jack Caulfield. Caulfield, a White House investigator who had conducted numerous political investigations, some with Anthony Ulasewicz, wanted to sell Magruder his political intelligence plan, Project Sandwedge, for use by CRP. Magruder had been organizing the campaign effort since May 1971, having received this assignment from Mitchell and Haldeman. In essence, the Sandwedge plan proposed a private corporation operating like a Republican intertel to serve the president's campaign. In addition to normal investigative activities, the Sandwedge plan also included the use of bagmen and other covert intelligence gathering operations. Project Sandwedge had been proposed to the White House by Caulfield in the spring of 1971, but was not favorably received by Mitchell and Ehrlichman. After the initial luncheon meeting between Magruder and Caulfield, the plan was again put to Mitchell, this time for use by CRP, but he again rejected it. 5. The Hiring of G. Gordon Liddy by the Campaign Committee With Sandwedge rebuffed, Magruder and Gordon Stockman of Haldeman's staff asked Dean to find a lawyer to serve as CRP general counsel who could also direct an intelligence gathering program. Magruder stated that he and Dean had, on previous occasions, discussed the need for such a program with Attorney General Mitchell. The man Dean recruited was G. Gordon Liddy, who moved from the Special Investigations Unit in the White House to CRP. Magruder testified that, when Dean sent Liddy to the committee to re-elect the president in 1971, he, that is Magruder, was unaware of Liddy's activities for the plumbers, particularly his participation in the break-in of Dr. Fielding's office. Dean had first asked Crow whether David Young would be available for the special CRP assignment. Crow said no, but suggested Liddy, with the caveat that Ehrlichman must approve of the transfer. Subsequently, Crow informed Dean that Ehrlichman did approve. Dean then called Mitchell to tell him that Crow, with Ehrlichman's sanction, had recommended Liddy and to arrange for Mitchell to meet Liddy. Ehrlichman, however, denied in a committee staff interview that he approved Liddy's assignment to the CRP and has stated that he first learned of Liddy's CRP employment after the Watergate break-in. The record shows that Mitchell, still the Attorney General, interviewed Liddy on November 24, 1971, and approved Liddy for his position with CRP. B. The Committee for the Re-Election of the President and its Relation to the White House Before relating the evidence regarding the planning of the CRP's political intelligence gathering program that ultimately resulted in the Watergate break-in, it is important briefly to identify CRP's close relation with, if not domination by, the White House. 
the evidence accumulated by the select committee demonstrates that crp was a white house product answerable to top white house leadership it appears that h r haldeman the president's chief of staff was principally responsible for organizing crp john mitchell has stated that haldeman was the moving force in may 1971 jeb magruder then a haldeman staff assistant was released from his White House position and assigned the task of building the re-election committee. With Magruder on this assignment were Harry S. Fleming, Hugh W. Sloan, Jr., Herbert Porter, Robert Odell, and Dr. Robert Merrick. All but Merrick were former White House aides. Magruder cleared all recruitment of White House personnel for the committee with Haldeman, although Attorney General Mitchell also passed on the appointment of persons to important re-election committee positions, Richard Kleindienst, in a meeting with the president on April 15, 1973, characterized Mitchell's role in the formulation of CRP as that of a puppet. The evidence, however, shows that Mitchell assumed a political managerial role as to the election effort as early as the spring of 1971, a year before he left his position as attorney general. It was understood, even at that early time, that Mitchell would take full charge of the campaign when it went into high gear. Thus, Mitchell received memorandums for his information and approval from CRP as early as May 1971. The campaign organization eventually evolved into two entities. One, the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, which had the responsibility for political activity. 2. The Finance Committee for the Re-Election of the President, the organ responsible for campaign fundraising and disbursement. Approximately 35 White House aides left their positions to assume key or low-level positions at CRP or FCRP. A comparison of the CRP organization chart and the White House organization chart for the period of 1971-72 to 72, shows that most important positions in the campaign organizations were held by former White House aides. Magruder was the caretaker director of the campaign political arm from May 1971 until March 1972, when Mitchell took over the duties of campaign director. To keep Haldeman informed daily of CRP operations, Gordon Stockman, a Haldeman staff assistant, was designated as the liaison between Haldeman and Magruder. On a regular basis, Magruder provided Stockman with reports of CRP activities and decision memorandums requiring Haldeman's approval. Robert Odell, CRP administrative assistant under Magruder, testified that CRP memorandums went to the White House in such significant numbers that there was a sample memorandum in the staff manual showing the prescribed form for a memorandum from a CRP staffer to Haldeman or other White House personnel. Magruder also sent a flow of memorandums to Mitchell for his reaction or approval. Examples of memorandums to Mitchell while he was still Attorney General are Exhibits number 74 and 75. As noted, Mitchell's campaign activity began as early as May 1971. Prior to his appearance before the Select Committee, Mitchell testified in March 1972 before the Senate Judiciary Committee that he had no re-election campaign responsibilities before his resignation as Attorney General. The two divisions of the campaign organization were ultimately headed by two cabinet members, 
Mitchell became director of CRP, and Secretary of Commerce Maurice Stans retired to head FCRP. Mr. Stans testified before the committee that, as FCRP director, he raised approximately $60 million for the campaign. These funds were dispersed on the basis of decisions made by a budget committee consisting of key officials of CRP and FCRP. These decisions were at times reviewed by Haldeman. After the November election, FCRP had a substantial surplus, much of which was apparently used to defend itself in lawsuits and to pay legal fees of former CRP and FCRP officials involved in various Watergate-related legal matters. As the select committee files its final report, approximately $3.5 million in FCRP surplus is still held by the Campaign Liquidation Trust. On the basis of this evidence, the committee finds that the Committee for the Re-Election of the President and the Finance Committee to Re-Elect the President were, in the main, White House staffed and White House-controlled political organizations. It finds that they were initially conceived and created for the purpose of assuring White House control over the campaign funds raised by FCRP and the campaign strategies planned and implemented by CRP. End of section 2